Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And this was a damn interesting week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. Great news, everyone. SciTech Daily has reported that a new study indicates potatoes are healthier than you think. Yay. Oh, that is good news. Right? <laughs> yeah, because we have been giving them a pretty bad rap over recent years because of the sugar content, right? Mm-hmm. It's the carbs. And okay, to be honest... It may not have all the benefits of other vegetables. It's no cauliflower, for example. Right. It tastes better. Yeah. (laughs) Right? But it can still be a healthy option. The key is to prepare it correctly. Mm. And what they mean by correctly is don't slather it in butter and salt and oil. So just like a raw potato. I could just take a bite out of it (laughs) and then I'm doing good. (laughs) Well, not raw, but they are using the word boiled a whole heck of a lot. Mm. So- The research from Edith Cohen University shows that out of 54,000 people, the heavy veg eaters were 21% less likely to develop type 2 diabetes than those who consumed the least amount of vegetables. That kind of tracks with what we knew. Sure. But in previous studies, potatoes have been positively linked to the incidence of diabetes regardless of how they're prepared. And when they separated boiled potatoes from mashed or fries Boiled potatoes were no longer associated with a higher risk of diabetes. And Mm. they also found that people who ate the most potatoes prepared in unhealthy ways tend to also consume overall just more butter, more Mm. red meat, more soft drink, other foods that are definitely known to increase risk of type 2 diabetes. So please eat more vegetables. Just Mm -hmm. eat more vegetables. Yeah, I have a chip on my shoulder on the eat more vegetables warpath only because I know that in whatever, the 40s or 50s, the USDA was basically like, oh, hey, we figured out you guys need to be eating less meat and cheese. And the meat and cheese lobby said, no, 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 do not say that. You can say eat more vegetables, but don't say eat less meat and cheese. So it's like, Mm -hmm. yes, you should eat more vegetables, but it's because the vegetables are substituting, Mm -hmm. not adding on to what Mm -hmm. you are already eating. All right, soapbox done. (laughs) (laughs) Super fair. Okay, next link. Next Next link. link. Bad news, everybody. (laughs) Tiny radioactive capsule goes missing in Western Australia. Wait, how tiny and how radioactive? Because those are important factors in this. (laughs) Yeah, well, we're going to find out. Uh My understanding is it's about six millimeters by eight millimeters. Mm. Oh, they're never going to find that. Yeah. Mm. And it's said to contain a reasonable amount of radiation, (laughs) which... Don't know how much that is precisely, but... Reasonable seems a very subjective unit of measurement for something I would hope to have a little bit more scientific rigor applied to. Mm -hmm. Yes. So this article comes to us from BBC.com, and an urgent search is underway in Western Australia after a tiny capsule containing a radioactive substance went missing. The case contains a small quantity of radioactive cesium-137, which could cause serious illness if touched. It was lost between the town of Newman and the city of Perth in mid-January, a distance of roughly 
1,400 kilometers or 870 miles. Wow. The public has been warned to stay away from the capsule if they see it. It was being transported. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Wow. I mean, report it, I guess, but don't touch it. (laughs) Uh, It was being transported on a truck between a mine site north of Newman in the Pilbara region when it was mislaid. Cesium-137 is a substance commonly used in mining operations. The Department of Fire and Emergency Services has said the capsule cannot be weaponized, but could cause radiation burns and have other long-term risks like cancer. As I mentioned, the object emits a reasonable amount of radiation. Dr. Andrew Robertson, the state's chief health officer and radiological council chair, said, Our concern is that someone will pick it up not knowing what it is. They may think it is something interesting and keep it in their room or even in their pocket. Who knows, you know? (sighs) The department has released an illustration of the object, and the sites where the transportation began and ended have been searched and efforts are underway to figure out the exact route and stops that were made to narrow down the field of search. Anyone who sees the object is asked to call the DFES and to seek urgent medical assistance if they think they have come into contact with it. Do they explain how it fell out of the truck? <laughs> now, well, it's so small. I mean, as somebody who is a little bit too online on Twitter from time to time, uh-huh. I saw <laughs> mocking tweets talking about somebody's mess up here, and it seemed to imply that there was a guy just like carrying it around. And it, like, <laughs> fell out of his pocket. Burned out of his pocket. That could be possible, <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't know why he would be carrying it around or something, but apparently there's some story out there, which, unfortunately, I do not know well enough to tell you, but... Sure, sure. <laughs> we don't want to spread conspiracy theories. Right, yeah. right. But, like, you do have the same question, right? Like, okay, they have this industrial operation. They have this radioactive material that they use for mining. You would think that's, like, pretty well controlled and something they've been doing for a long time. So how do you just right. lose a little capsule? Listen, we've all seen Jurassic Park. Yeah. We know what <laughs> happens to the embryos. You put them in that little fake shaving cream can yeah, yeah, yeah. There so you that go. you can mm-hmm. smuggle it off. <gasps> oh. This is how it starts, y'all. That's much more nefarious. Yeah, if he knew what he was stealing, maybe it just was stolen and he's claiming it was lost and now it's going to be dropped into the water supply of Perth. Oh, we, are, <laughs> we, are, we are feeding the fire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was innocent and they're going to find it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Anyways, the important part is to avoid that 1,400 mile stretch of Australia and you should be fine. Yeah, I think okay, I, think I can manage that. That's all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next link. Okay, this comes from astronomy called Great Balls of Fire. How flames behave in space. So here on Earth, we know a pretty good deal about how fire works. Hot air gets close to the base of the flame, and as it gets hot, it rises. Gravity pulls in colder, denser air to replace it. And this cycling of air gives us the teardrop shape of flames that we know here on Earth. Mm. In microgravity, though, fire behaves very differently. Hot air expands outwards because there is no up in space. (laughs) Uh, The fire is then just fed by random oxygen molecules that it happens to come across. Hmm. So if you're looking at a flame in space, it's just a perfect ball because it's expanding (gasps) outwards, right? These balls of flame burn slower, longer, survive on less oxygen, and burn colder at a mere 900 degrees, which is still hot, but a small (laughs) fraction of the heat given off by flames on Earth. 
So scientists still have a lot of unanswered questions about how fire behaves in microgravity. Are certain materials more flammable? What is the best method for extinguishing a rogue flame? A rogue flame. <laughs> right. Questions that are somewhat critical to the safety mm -hmm. of astronauts on ISS sure. and as we prepare for Mars, right? And we had a fire in 97 aboard the Mir. A fire ignited from an oxygen generator and filled the station with toxic smoke and cut off access to the escape vehicle, too. Uh-oh. They doused the flame with a fire extinguisher, but here we've got a problem. Fire extinguishers behave differently in microgravity. Of the course The gases they do. that are used to snuff out a flame can literally just fan the flames by pushing oh, the no! oxygen out. Right? Okay. Yeah. So the fire aboard the station was only truly extinguished after that oxygen generator had emptied. And they mm. were lucky. They were really lucky. So again, the big issue is that fire is not necessarily predictable in microgravity. The flames can spread really in any direction. And the same is true of smoke, making it difficult to put out smoke detectors. Right, because it's not going to rise to the ceiling. It's going to just mm. sort of be there. Yes. Yeah, so in 2008, it took them a good 11 years. NASA created the Combustion Integrated Rack, or the CIR, and put it on the ISS. It's used to safely experiment with combustions and microgravity. It's a 26-gallon combustion chamber with five cameras in it, and hmm. it's been in use for 15 years. Eh, they may want to replace <laughs> it. 15 years seems like a long time to be blowing mm -hmm. stuff up in space. The tests were part of what they called the Flame Extinguishment Experiment, or FLEX. Wow, what a dream job for a pyromaniac. Let's <laughs> go right. into space and blow stuff up. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the good news is with no oxygen outside, the fire is only ever going to burn inside. Like, you know, you're not going to take down the whole structure. You're only going to take down everything inside it. <laughs> it's heartwarming. Yeah, yeah. I'm just imagining, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. like, because, because, okay, so like to train firefighters, they have like staged houses out in the desert that they deliberately set on fire so that the firefighters can practice like going into a house and, you know, following mm -hmm. the path of the flame. They could make a space station that we deliberately set on fire periodically and let astronaut firefighters practice on. No? Terrible idea? Okay. I mean, that's, no, it's <laughs> No, perfect. it seems like a good you, idea, just expensive, you, probably. Sure, yeah. This is why you get Hollywood in on it. You pitch it as it's a space studio for special mm. effects, and now we have funding. There mm -hmm. you go. Get Tom Cruise involved. Yeah, he'll pay for it. He'll go in space. He'll do it. Mm -hmm. So uh, Daniel Dietrich, a scientist at NASA's Glenn Research Center, said one of the biggest discoveries, not only in microgravity program, but in probably the past 20 to 30 years of combustion research, has been during flex experiments. What they discovered was that there are certain liquids that after the fuels are extinguished, they will spontaneously reignite. Oh, dear. And the flame is called a cold flame because it burns at lower temps and is invisible to the human eye. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. Yeah, they still don't know why this happens. They're, they're working on that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's why you got to do the science, man. Get that chamber, figure that's it right. out, because right. that sounds really scary. Uh -huh. But also, too, it has potential applications here on Earth. So it could hypothetically produce fewer air pollutants and diesel because it's burning colder. Mm. And so they're looking at ways to test those things and to be able to burn fuels better, more efficiently that don't have pollutants in it. Mm -hmm. And that's done under NASA's Advanced Combustion via Microgravity Experiments, or ACME. Ugh. Oh, Somebody's having a lot yeah, of fun boy. with these acronyms, I tell you. Uh -huh. uh, yeah, they're, they're the ones who are using the microgravity experiments to study, you know, what makes an efficient flame. 
And then eventually this stuff gets kicked down to us. Mm -hmm. Over time, we'll eventually, these materials will find their way into the public sector. Which is what we want. Better, more efficient, invisible fire in the public sector. Yeah, yeah, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's a similar phenomenon that happens on Earth with uh, hydrogen fires that can happen in certain lab conditions, but even the burning is invisible. So stuff just starts burning up and crinkling and smoking without any actual visible light or fire. So what they had to do when this would happen, and I think this was probably NASA, but they did what was called the broom test where they would just carry a broom in front of their faces into these rooms where they didn't <gasps> know right. if there was fire or not yeah and they would see if they lit on fire or not oh, and that was that just a few weeks ago right <laughs> yeah yeah There's some news got came to out be about it. a better way yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you'd like to think we've evolved beyond the canary in the coal mine but apparently no it's just the no, broom no. in the space center <laughs> just, yeah <laughs> just shove bubba in there and see what happens yeah <laughs> <laughs> next link Next link. All right. Well, we're going to step a little bit out of our zone here for a minute and put on our true crime hats for this next article from The Guardian called The Killer Could Still Be Among Us. Oh. Uh -oh. (laughs) And it's about a supposedly solved case from Wales in 1976 when the bodies of Patty and Griff Thomas were discovered together in their farmhouse in the small village of Shanglemon. Patty and Griff were siblings, both in their 70s, who had never married and who had lived in the family home their entire lives. They lived frugally, but were reasonably well off due to a combination of family inheritance, farm income, and state pensions. And when the mailman discovered the bodies, he immediately recognized it as foul play. There were signs of a struggle, lots of blood everywhere. But the strangest thing about the case was that while Patty had died from a blow to the head, Griff had received a blow to the head, but then his body had been surrounded by couch cushions and set on fire, which the coroner (gasps) ruled was technically his cause of death. What? Yeah. So Hmm. just three weeks later, Detective Chief Superintendent Pat Malloy closed the case, declaring it a murder-suicide. Wow. He said at the time, quote, I consider that the possibility of a third party being involved is so remote as to lead me to the conclusion that Mr. Thomas killed his sister and died in a fire started by himself. As for motive, he suggested that Patty had been the frugal one and she had prevented Griff from spending his money the way he liked and after 70 years together in this domineering relationship, he had finally snapped. As evidence for this theory, Malloy pointed to the fact that there was lots of money left in the house, which a thief certainly would have taken, and in particular, there was a smear of Griff's blood on a coin purse in the living room. He also noted that the dresser drawers weren't ransacked and the telephone line was still plugged in, which he claimed any seasoned thief would have ripped out immediately. But people who knew them at the time, many of whom are still alive today, say this is absolute nonsense. They say (laughs) the siblings were best friends and extremely sociable. Neither one of them was strong enough to have beaten the other one over the head. They said Patty wasn't remotely stingy and that both of them were actually kind of loose with their money, leaving it on various surfaces all over the house, meaning a thief could have grabbed plenty that was in plain sight and not needed to search for more. What's more... The coroner's report shows that while both lost a lot of blood, neither one of them had any of the other one's blood on them. Patty's blood was all over the corner of a heavy chair, which she was presumably hit with, and which, again, Griff was not strong enough to lift, while Griff's blood was on a sewing machine that had been subsequently stowed in place with a wood cover. Hmm. On top of that, Patty and Griff had a large dog, which would bark at strangers, and the dog was later found killed on the property. 
Oh, I know. You could have warned me with the, does the I'm dog sorry. die? Uh, I'm sorry. I'm, <laughs> I won't tell you how the dog died. That's how I'm saving uh, right. you. Okay, thank you. Thank <laughs> you. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> there were also two unfinished cups of tea and a plate of snacks in the living room as if Patty had been serving refreshments to a guest. And they couldn't have been for Griff because Griff had just come back from the shops and most of his purchases were still in his pockets. Huh. Some of the first people on the scene said they saw footprints in the snow leading away from the house, but none of these details were ever followed up on. Like a murder inquest sometimes takes years, and the detective basically was like, three weeks, in and out, nope, murder-suicide, we're done. Mm. And people who still live in the town say that the reason no one dared to question the ruling of murder-suicide at the time was that Detective Malloy was kind of a big shot. And he did it. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I mean, I was thinking it. It, Yeah, for sure. (laughs) So when he took the position, he had just secured a conviction in several high-profile murder cases, one of which he later published a book about, and his record was so impressive that police at the time coined the phrase Malloy's luck to mean that a case was a slam dunk. Wow. Yeah. Now, they're not saying he did it, though we will. They think (laughs) that he realized that this case was going to go unsolved, right? It was a mystery guy. They Mm -hmm. were never going to find him. And he didn't want that on his record. So he came up with this insane theory to keep his reputation intact. Oh, the Gilderoy Lockhart defense. (laughs) Yeah. So referencing Harry Potter. Okay. (laughs) And all of this, again, was in 1976. So why are we talking about it now? Well, a new TV show has just come out in the UK called The Pembrokeshire Murders. And it follows the story of two other cold case murders from the 80s that were reopened for DNA testing in 2011, which subsequently proved that both were committed by a man named John Cooper. Both of those murders took place less than an hour from Patty and Griff's farm. And in one of the cases, the victims were elderly siblings who lived on a farm (gasps) whose house was set on fire after they were killed. Um, yes, that's exactly what all the people in the Welsh town are saying. They're like, hello, (laughs) we have this case and it is really obviously similar. Now, Cooper is already serving life in prison for a number of crimes, but the people of Shanglemon have been petitioning for DNA testing in Patty and Griff's case for years because they say it's important to clear Griff's name. Like, he was officially convicted of manslaughter after his death. It's on record. And they don't like it. They're like, we're a small community. We all loved Griff. We don't think it's right that he's blamed for this thing. And the local police force has finally caved, and they say they will be running the latest forensic technology on the evidence and storage to see what comes up. And they talk about it, you know, they do lip service the idea of like, because we want to see justice served too. But I'm very cynical. I think they got the funding for the testing from a television producer looking to make a sequel. So Mm -hmm. maybe we'll see all of this in detail in a couple of years on TV. But you know what? Whatever it takes. Griff sounds like a nice guy and it doesn't seem fair. And this was in the 70s. So I assume, is that sheriff still alive? No, no. The detective is long gone. Basically, everybody who is alive who knew them was someone who was like, there was a 15-year-old farm worker. Who knew them? Like, everybody is very old now, mm-hmm. but they knew them when they were very young. And there was other stuff where, like, they had documented in the report that they had interviewed some 1,200 witnesses, except, first of all, all the people who knew them were like, they never interviewed me. And the guy who was, like, downstairs from the situation room where they were doing this was like, everybody up there was bored. They were playing marbles. There was nobody coming in and out. Like, they faked <laughs> the whole thing. Oh, it's like being on League of Legends while the investors are on a call with you, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I guess I can kind of see it because like everybody also talked about how great Malloy was. Like nobody says he was a bad guy. 
And so they're thinking like he saw right away this wasn't going to get solved. And he was like, we're not wasting police resources on this. Mm -hmm. But still, like, you got to do your job. You can't just be like, Yeah, there's nah. something to be said for transparency and being honest about all of your work. But I know that's a high bar. Yeah, yeah. We right, and there may the still be a killer out there. So. Right, and that was, of course, where <laughs> the title comes from. You may need from. to catch that person. Yeah, uh, maybe it wasn't yeah. this Cooper guy, but maybe it was somebody that is still living in the small town, menacing people. Right. So. Uh -huh. Next link. Next, Next link. link. All right, from the Smithsonian. These ants were trained to sniff out cancer. Yes, you heard that right. Huh. Dogs and robots move over because <laughs> in just 10 minutes, an ant can learn to identify urine from mice with cancerous tumors. Oh, but see, okay, here's the thing. If you have cancer and they have a cancer-sniffing dog, that's cute. If they're going to put ants all over you to find out if you have cancer. Like, I feel like we're going backwards in time. Are they going to bloodlet me too? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> put some bleaches on it. And, uh, we're all yeah, good. If, if the idea of that makes your skin crawl, don't worry. We're not saying to release a bunch of ants on you. Just your pee. Oh. All right. Well, I mean, that's all right, because probably some of them will drown. So that's fun. <laughs> I don't like ants. Well, stuff <laughs> kids do all the time, right? They pee on the ant pile. <laughs> Gosh. Well, maybe in a perhaps more reverential, if not respectful, right. exchange ah. of interspecies faith, uh, a new <laughs> study published Wednesday in Proceedings of the Royal Society B, with just the letter B, not the insect B, even though we're talking about insects, ants could differentiate between the smell of urine from healthy mice and from mice with cancerous tumors, which has obvious applicable benefit, right? Sure. And the research serves as a proof of concept demonstrating that ants could someday be used as a fast, inexpensive, and non-invasive tool for detecting cancer, which would be a very good thing, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So I mean, reluctant. yes, you don't want them inserting the ants into you, so no, I'm on board. No. <laughs> so now you're on board. Well, you know, we are obviously trying to hone in on better early detection methods because right now what we've got are pretty invasive, expensive procedures. So this is why we've been turning to look at animals that have far better olfactory systems, in part because tumor cells, they release volatile organic compounds. Hmm. And in previous studies, dogs have detected VOCs from tumors in cell samples and body odors. And researchers have even found that one species of roundworm was attracted to some VOCs from cancer. Hey, oh. roundworm, you can have them. And even though ants don't have noses the way that we do, they do have a highly developed sense of smell because their antenna on top of their heads, it both detects and releases odors, all of which communicate things like how to find food, how to attack prey. There was a study that showed certain ants could smell the difference between lab-grown cancer cells and healthy cells. And in the new study, the researchers transplanted a really a, like hyper-aggressive breast cancer tumor from humans onto mice. Oh. Super rude. Man, but, come mm, on. I know, I know. Then what they did is they exposed about 35 ants to the scent of urine from cancerous mice and trained them to associate it with a sugary treat, like mm, soda, whatever. 
Then later, when they were presented with urine from both sick and healthy mice, the ants spent 20% more time around the urine from the sick mice without、mm. the sugar presence. So they didn't get the reward, but the behavior is already starting to show. And we might even be looking at some advantages over other animals. For example, they were pretty easy to train. It only took three trials,、huh. totaling about 10 minutes altogether, to get an ant to connect the smell of cancer with the sugary reward. So that's a pretty quick turnaround time. And that was an unexpected result to see it happen that fast. But Obviously, we still got a lot more work to do, especially before they can be used with human patients. And we had a limitation with the experiment in this case that all the mice were pretty similar. They were from the same lineage, they were fed the、mm. same diet. So we need to mix it up and see if those ants can keep up. Yeah, it could have just been smelling the fact that they were all like genetically related. It was smelling a particular mouse family. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not here for the cancer. I'm here for that sweet, sweet bloodline. Yeah, you、That's、never、right. know. <laughs> They could be some very sexy mice, man. Like,、oh. the pheromones are just. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, this is that lab bred lineage. You hear me? <laughs> <laughs> God. Okay. <laughs> that really got me. Next deep. link. <laughs> Next link. This article comes to us from popularmechanics.com and it's titled. Humans may be shockingly close to decoding the language of animals. <gasps> What do the ants smell? Tell us your secrets. <laughs> <laughs> so, a nonprofit called Earth Species Project, or ESP, has one goal <laughs> decode non human communication. And the organization believes the nonstop advancements in artificial intelligence can help seal the deal fast. Of course, not only does Earth Species Project want to decode animal languages, it also wants to start communicating with the animals.、Mm. The World Economic Forum, WEF, has given the Earth Species Project and its CEO, Katie Zakarian, a platform. Zakarian says, We are on the cusp of applying the advances we are seeing in the development of AI for human language to animal communication. With this progress, we anticipate that we are moving rapidly toward a world in which two way communication with another species is likely. Along with recognizing communication patterns, scientists need to also link back the communication to behavior in order to have any hope of figuring out what the patterns could potentially mean. That's the focus of ESP, which is tracking animals, including birds, dolphins, primates, elephants, and honeybees, to match their communication with their behavior. Of course, this concept expands significantly if and when we start having conversations with animals and letting them make decisions for us, Dr. Doolittle、oh. style. Which I, I'm not sure how we jumped to that conclusion, but、yeah. you know. <laughs> Kay Firth Butterfield, the WF's head of AI and machine learning, says understanding what animals say is the first step to giving other species on the planet a voice in conversations on our environment. And, you know, I think this is cool and great and a potentially, you know, like legitimately useful application of AI. But also, a lot of the time, the communication that should happen is leave me the F alone. <laughs> you know? Right. right. Like, that's, that's all、exactly、there is to say. What I was thinking this entire time, like, if you have been paying attention to animals or are cognizant of animal needs, You're not going to like what they're going to say when you give them ability to be heard. Like, yeah. And that's actually the byline of this article, which is not really touched on in the text itself, but the byline is actually, but we might not like what they have to say. <laughs> right. So, you know, a little bit of subtle editorialization, which I also agree with.、So. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But I mean, it is super interesting to consider in general because who knows, we could build a compendium of animal language and at least we could prove and say, hey, yeah. Yes, the animals do have opinions about this stuff. And the next time you go, you know, throw a plastic bag in the ocean, 
we're going to send you a voicemail of an animal berating you <laughs> or something. It's like a dolphin just going, ee, 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 yeah. and you're like, okay, all right, exactly. I'm sorry. This could bring us closer to something like a Star Trek Universal Translator as well, because if we can apply machine learning to mm-hmm. decoded multi-species. Mm-hmm. We won't need Spock to communicate with the whales for us. <laughs> We can talk to the whales directly. <laughs> Sorry, it's a deep Star Trek cut there, everyone. Hey, I'm not even yeah. a giant fan of Star Trek, and I got it, so I say it's fair. <laughs> so it's a, me- a medium cut. There. Right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. Okay, this comes from Discover Magazine. What is the purpose of hiccuping? I, oh. I will uh, let you all know, uh, we still don't know. Um, but we have, but but there are some evolution hypotheses as to why we pick up. Hmm. For what it's worth, to nearly four thousand Americans are hospitalized each year for hiccups. <gasps> Whoa! Whoa! That's... Yeah, they they can spiral out of control, or the brain just doesn't ever want it to stop. Right. Huh. So, in one case, a person's hiccups were caused by just a tiny little hair brushing against their eardrum, <gasps> and a, another oh. one had a four-year stretch because they found a tumor. And his brain stem. Yikes. Mm-hmm. But at least that got rid of him when they got the tumor out of there. Wow. So then evolutionary then, what's the point of this? Why does this happen? To tell you have a tumor, apparently. I mean. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but they looked at the fact that human fetuses hiccup long before they're born. And diaphragmatic spasms are more common in infants than adults. Hmm. So it's possible This prevents the fetus from breathing in amniotic fluid while still in the womb. Or it could prevent newborns from choking on milk while breastfeeding. Or (laughs) others say that hiccuping in the womb trains a fetus's respiratory muscles for breathing after birth. Hmm. Other scientists are also looking even further back. A hiccup, they theorize, is a leftover evolutionary process in mammals dating back to our fish ancestors. When they transition from gill-based to lung-based, while still having both organs, the hiccup allows for the glottis to quickly close and push water out to the gills. Interesting. (gasps) Oh, that's so creepy. There was a, the world record goes to a man named Charles Osborne, an American who hiccuped for 68 years. No. Oh, I mean, at that point. Like that's mm-hmm. disruptive. That's just part of your life, yeah. yeah. Somewhere they said something like 430 million times he hicked up yeah. during his life. But long story short is, yeah, we still don't know uh, <laughs> yeah. what, what's actually causing these hiccups. So some scientists are getting paid some good money to go right to figure and, this out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if it leads to neurological breakthroughs, that's great. Yeah, I, I, my husband can willfully stop hiccups. What? Because he was a trumpet player, so he has like really good uh, breath control, diaphragm control, right? <laughs> yeah. and yep, he'll yep. have a hiccup, and he'll be like, hmm, and he'll just sort of like really concentrate, <laughs> and then it just stops. And I'm like, how dare you? I, I'm so mad. <laughs> I mean, to me, that makes sense. It's all starting from the brain. You know, it's all brain right. process anyway. It's involuntary, sure, but some of breathing What is a also cool Shaolin monk party trick, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it is, it's muscle control. Like, he's not doing anything mm-hmm. in his throat or with his lungs. He's, like, really focusing on his stomach and being like, you are not allowed to contract right now. It's infuriating, trust me. Because uh, <laughs> anytime I have the hiccups, he's just like, well, just make him stop. And I'm like, mm. <laughs> Have you tried thinking about it real hard? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, none of that works, though. Next link. Next Next link. link. All right. This next article comes from The Guardian, and it's called 
Incredible Roman Bather's Gems, Lost 2,000 Years Ago, Found Near Hadrian's Wall. So it's a little bit treasure hunt, a little bit storage wars, because when they went looking for these, (laughs) they were very certain that they were going to find something. They just didn't know how cool it would turn out to be. The archaeology site now sits in the modern-day city of Carlisle in England, but in Roman times, it was a bathhouse connected to the largest fort on Hadrian's Wall, which was the Roman Empire's northern frontier. The fort held an elite cavalry unit and had links to the imperial court, which meant some pretty rich people came to this bathhouse. And everything they've excavated so far confirms that it was incredibly opulent in its day, especially considering what they found caught in the bathhouse drains. Because people, whether they're rich or poor, they lose stuff, right? We've all been there. You go to the public pool, one of your hair clips falls out in the water, it's gone forever. And in the case of rich Romans, they were losing really expensive stuff. Like iPhones. (laughs) (laughs) Because most rings at that time had their gemstones set in place with a vegetable-based glue. That was all they had. And no! (laughs) It can very much dissolve in a hot bath. (laughs) Oh, this cheap ruby. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And while the drains did have a sort of rudimentary grate over them, the style for rings at the time often included a central stone surrounded by tiny, intricately carved gems that were small enough to go right through. These tiny side gems were called intaglios. They were just a few millimeters in diameter and featured full-on carvings, like Venus holding up a flower or a satyr seated on rocks next to a sacred column. Other images the team recently found include Mars holding a spear and a little mouse nibbling a branch, which for the Romans was a symbol of fertility. So these things were expensive, not just because they were gems, but because of the craftsmanship involved, right? Mm -hmm. So far, they've found more than 30 of these semi-precious stones in the drain pipe, as well as more than 40 women's hairpins and 35 glass beads, which they think were probably all from one necklace. (laughs) And you may ask yourself, why were these people wearing their jewelry into the bath? Why wouldn't they just take it off? And the answer is they didn't have combination lockers back then, so anything you took (laughs) off and left with your clothes was very likely to get stolen. Many ancient Roman baths, in fact, contain curse tablets, which were basically signage warning you not to steal. One curse (laughs) tablet found in a bathhouse in Bath, England, appropriately, reads, So long as someone, whether slave or free, keeps silent or knows anything about it, he may be accursed in blood and eyes and every limb and even have all intestines quite eaten away if he has stolen the ring. Quite eaten away. Thank you. Yes. And I feel like that's a tradition we should bring back. You know, like instead of a sign at the gym saying this area is monitored by closed circuit cameras, we need something Mm -hmm. about people's intestines being eaten away. Mm -hmm. You know? (laughs) That's right. Cancel culture just hasn't gone far enough. Mm -mm. (laughs) And at the bathhouse, I'm surprised that nobody during the Roman time cleaned out that drain and made themselves a buck. I mean, maybe it's like modern shower drains where it's clogged with hair and the hair has, you know, dissolved away by now so we can just get the gems. Uh, But maybe at the time it was like incredibly gross. I don't know. I don't get the impression they were big on hygiene in general. Like bathhouse or no, they weren't doing so great. Right, or or that was the bathhouse that was closing. That's right. right. The health inspector Uh shut this one down, guys. Right, and that's the last of the stuff. They had to leave. Nobody could walk back in there. And that was it. It stays for 2,000 years. All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include This Rembrandt has been hiding a surprising secret for centuries. Oxytocin's reputation as the love hormone might be overrated. And Requiem for a String, charting the rise and fall of a theory of everything. 
So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on daminteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash daminterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Weisper Chen. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye. 